Hello and welcome to Gather Round, the podcast series sharing stories from Aberdeen Archives, Gallery and Museums. In every episode, we'll be talking to members of the team and our partners about the collection, special exhibitions, the histories of our fascinating venues and tales of Aberdeen. Sometimes they might be dark and dramatic and always entertaining and informative. In this episode, our guests are Dr Adrian Maldonado, Galloway Hoard Researcher at National Museum Scotland, and Dr Tim Carlyle, who, as well as being a member of our multi-talented museum assistant team, is also a scholar of Viking archaeology and history. Listen in as Adrian and Tim discuss what is a hoard and what makes a Galloway hoard so unique. So, Adrian, why don't you start us off by telling us what is a hoard? Well, a hoard is in the mind, don't you know? <laughs> you know, uh, a hoard can be whatever you want it to be. I, I think there's a, in 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 archaeology there is a strict legal definition, uh, according to the 1996 Treasure Act. Uh, I think uh, when it comes to uh, non-precious metals, uh, two or more objects in close association uh, can legally be considered a hoard. Beyond the technical uh, definition, though, I think uh, when we're talking about hordes, what immediately comes to mind is things that people have gathered together, probably over a period of time, that have some kind of meaning behind them. The reason for gathering them together uh, might not be apparent just from looking at the objects, but for the person who's put them together, they have some kind of association that is meaningful, and that's why they've assembled all those things into one place. And the trick for archaeologists, you know, is to look at those objects, divorced of that context, and try to rebuild that story. Why were they brought together at the time that they were brought together? Why were they put in the ground, usually, uh, when we find them? And with a lot of hordes that we find, two, three, even a hundred objects, it can be really difficult to kind of piece that together, to get in the mind of the person who may have used these things 600, 700, 1,000 or more years ago. But with the Galloway Horde, we have this really unique opportunity to uh, reconstruct the motivation behind it because there is so much material beyond the hard stuff, which usually survives, beyond just the metal, the gold and the silver. There's actually soft stuff that usually rots away in the ground. There's the textile that shows that these things were wrapped in bundles. So they weren't just sort of chucked into a hole and then covered up quickly. They were carefully wrapped up. And that wrapping also shows us that these objects were part of one bundle and these other objects were part of a second bundle. And suddenly you're thinking, this is a collection from more than one person. Suddenly you're thinking, there's three, four people involved in this. And then the story becomes something, uh, something else entirely. Now your mind is racing, you know. What's this group of people? Uh, can we tell any more about why at this time they came together to drop this hoard? And there's even more clues the more and more you look at the hoard uh, to try to get into people's minds. It really sort of, uh, there's really a lot to conjure with uh, with regard to the Galloway hoard. There's metal soft materials, there's even names inscribed on objects. So there's a lot more material to go on than there usually is with the Galloway Hoard. Yeah, uh, brilliant. Um, yeah, I agree with every point. Um, but I will add that part of the pitfall of using the term hoard is that it conjures up these in the sort of public 
um, knowledge, sort of wider cultural references now, images of greed and, you know, Smaug the dragon sitting on his pile of gold and, um, and you know, like I said, Scrooge McDuck style, big pile of gold, or even if you put it into a historical context, a bunch of people seeing Viking sails, seeing striped sails on the horizon saying we have to get all of our valuable stuff, all of our buying power and bury it in the ground. And I guess uh, to sort of take a stretch onto um, uh, uh, what I said earlier, the that idea also it it implies almost a sort of forgetfulness in for past peoples. Like we've placed all these objects, um, you know, placed our valuables in the ground in a hasty sort of manner, which obviously is not the case with the Galloway Horde, um, and then forgotten about them or, you know, potentially been killed, but forgotten about them. In some cases, that might be, you know, that might have been the case, but the pitfall is, it's obviously unique to every, every the context of every horde is unique, and that couldn't, can't be the case for everything defined as a horde. That's such a good point, Tim. I think the idea with the horde, the stories that it conjures up is not only, they're not only about why was it put there, but also... Why did nobody come back for it? Why was it yeah. left there? Uh, 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 and and I think that's such a that's such a, a vital uh, point for trying to understand every single deposit. How come they didn't come back for it? Did tragedy befall yeah. them, uh, or did they? Yeah, did they just have so many piles of silver and so many <laughs> pits that you know this is the one they didn't come back yeah. for? Uh, and I think with the Galloway Horde, we're just looking at something that not only was deposited with care, it was almost as if it was committed to the ground in, in some way or another, as if it was uh, supposed uh, uh, to stay there in a way. Uh, there's sort of, you could actually have it both ways with the Galloway Horde though, because you could argue it was done so carefully and everything was done uh, uh, just so. so. The Horde has this lidded vessel, and that vessel was packed up so carefully to make sure everything fit, and then it was wrapped up in at least three layers of textile, so it wasn't like put in a potato sack, you know? It was carefully uh, wound up, and so potentially so were all the different parcels. At the same time, we know that the Galloway Horde has this lower level and then an upper level and uh, and we've been calling it for the longest time since its discovery. We've been calling that upper layer the decoy layer, as if to say somebody would find that upper layer of silver, they'd be satisfied, and they'd walk away without knowing that just a few centimeters under the ground, there's even more silver and even more gold, <laughs> you know? And that, you know, that if that was the motivation for putting them in these two layers then certainly that sounds like uh, a, a safe deposit box right. that somebody wanted to avoid losing, which implies that they were hoping to come back for it. So you can actually have it both ways with the Galloway Horde. One thing that I really like to think about, though, is the fact that uh, it was deposited near what would become a church. And one of the big questions about the Galloway Horde is, was there a church there? in the ninth century, in the 10th century, when the hoard was deposited. And, and we don't know that yet. I think uh, only more, more field work would ever really mm. sort that out. 
but there's a possibility that this is a sacred site, maybe, or just outside of a sacred site. So that kind of helps you uh, put some uh, put some more details into the mix. Yeah. Um, but then there's also the fact that in that upper deposit, whether it's a decoy deposit or not, there's in that cross. upper deposit, yeah, there's this cross, and it's. Uh, and, and I like the idea of the cross being at the top of the hoard as a sort of protection for everything below. But again, there's, there's different ways of looking at it, isn't there? Like, you know, does the cross have to be protective or, you know, what other ways could you Or if, see we're, if we're looking at just sort of statements, I, I want to um, <clears throat> pull on the committed to the ground sort of thread and, and sort of posit that is the... Uh, cross included in the top layer if there's a church connection is that the church having to sort of be on the top of the pile in a sense that there's this much older referencing tradition of committing things to the ground and that you know some element of society is connected to the church and they can't be excluded from this because it's happening but the church still has to be involved so they just you know, you got to commit this part of this to the ground, which um, sort of kind of begs the question as to the boss, the interpretation that the boss is missing from the, cro the, from the cross and has been, you know, removed. Is this a sort of object that's been taken in a raid and some, you know, the Christian here has got, actually, we can't include this, you know, is that a representation of Christ? We can't include that in this older tradition. Or is it, you know, someone directly associated with, the clergy saying we can't include this or has it been removed sometime in the distant past or potentially by a raider of some sort yeah. who has just popped off this boss from the center of the cross and says i'll have that yeah i'll make that into a lovely brooch yeah. uh for someone special in my life yeah. uh but the rest of it is just made out of silver so that goes with the rest of the mm -hmm. in effect the money you know, so you could actually kind of see it both ways. And I think that's one of the uh, one of the most interesting things about the Galloway Horde is that it conjures up stories, but you can have all of these different stories as well. You can kind of come up with your own story uh, to a certain extent and throw that in the mix. And it helps uh, the, you know, whatever the story eventually becomes about the Galloway Horde, each one of these uh, kind of thrown into the mix helps that story kind of emerge. Brilliant. And I think that leads us on to our next question, Adrian. Can you tell us a bit about what makes the Galloway Horde so unique? One of the, one of the things that, that I keep talking about everywhere I go um, about the Galloway Horde is this sort of preservation of organic material, you know, the soft stuff that usually rots away, that usually doesn't survive in archaeology. Uh, um, it's the focus of the current research project, which is ongoing. Uh, about the Galloway Horde. It's called Unwrapping the Galloway Horde. It's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It's the NMS uh, in partnership with the University of Glasgow. Um, and they're literally unwrapping, unpeeling uh, stuff that was bundled and covered with textiles, stuff that is so fragile that it actually hasn't ever been on display uh, in the museum in Edinburgh or in Kirkcubri or now in Aberdeen. There are still more objects that haven't seen, you know, the public eye. Uh, and it's because there's this remarkable preservation of textile wrappings. They don't usually survive. This stuff is really soft, 
quite thin, and once it comes into contact with the soil and the, the sort of groundwater, uh, all of a sudden it begins to kind of degrade. Uh, it doesn't really, it, it isn't supposed to survive, but with the Galloway Horde, it does. There's good scientific and chemical reasons for this. It's contact with silver, which is naturally biocidal, mm -hmm. you know, it, it sort of has this antibacterial quality to it, which allows textiles in contact with silver to survive. But also, it, it, it's, the, it's the fact that it was recovered uh, on the day of its discovery. So as soon as the uh, metal detectorist uh, uh, Derek McLennan and his team uh, realized what they had, they phoned up the authorities straight away, and it was the regional archaeologist Andy Nicholson who came out and uh, did the excavation on the day because it was done so quickly and uh, uh, and in the correct way. Uh, it allowed for the preservation of things that probably in in, in previous hordes that were found by you know uh, antiquarians who were just kind of uh, uh, who employed work people to kind of shovel through. Uh, settlements and then kind of report anything shiny or sometimes just children playing in the garden, mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh, uh, the difference with the Galloway Horde is that it was uh, sort of excavated uh, and recorded and then immediately sort of sent to uh, experts for stabilizing and conservation. Mm -hmm. It's almost like uh, if to draw a sort of uh, draw a Scandinavian comparison, it's like the Vasa of, you know, hordes that was found at a time when you could really preserve and study everything that's involved and make sure that those things didn't degrade. Yeah, I think it, it, it and it sort of, for me, it, uh, it's, it's made me go back to all of the other sort of Viking Age hordes from Scotland and say, and, and just wonder, you know, I wonder what was lost from these, you know, if, uh, if they were recovered on the day mm -hmm. and with sort of scrupulous recording and yeah. uh, whacked into a fridge straight away, you mm -hmm. know, uh, uh, I wonder how much more we would have. So, you know, the Galloway Horde stands alone in that kind of preservation now, but I wonder if it was more common, mm, you know. To use, to use textiles or silk wrappings or anything like that to um, give us the information that we would have to the decision-making that was happening with regards to placing those hordes, objects being wrapped up, um, uh, scale hoard and uh, Curadea hoard having all those, you know, huge silver, like you couldn't even wear them, silver brooches that, you know, those being bound together with their other objects or the bundles of objects speaking to the people who were present at the placement and the sort of potential long-term or almost heritage of the objects. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about. So the scale hoard is on display in the National Museum in Edinburgh, and it's displayed as just, you know, sort of brooches, big, large, you know, penannular brooches made out of silver. They're displayed on the back of a case upright, and then piles of silver bars and silver ingots at the mm -hmm. bottom of the case. And so that is for the visitor to be able to appreciate that there's different elements in this hoard. But yeah, suddenly you're thinking about, um, I wonder how this was deposited. Did the brooches go first and mm -hmm. the bars of silver in a bag uh, in between them, like in the hoop of those brooches? Or, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, the brooches were in one bag, you know, uh, and, and the silver bars in the other. 
there, and that would help us kind of understand a little bit more. Was there only one person involved in depositing this hoard? Is this the uh, combined valuables of a number of people, as it appears to be with the mm-hmm. Galloway hoard? And suddenly you're looking at these old hoards, which we've uh, which, which were, you know, uh, found sometimes a hundred years or more and have been displayed in museums for a hundred years or more. Suddenly you're going back and looking at those hordes and coming up with new stories, new ideas. Uh, so the Galloway Horde has, has sort of really sparked the imagination and, and, and forced us to go back to the books and say, what do we really know about the ninth and the 10th centuries? Yeah, and you can even expand that slightly retrospective scope, you know, not even just to Scotland, but to the British Isles, and then go farther and further into Northern Europe and the sort of wider, quote unquote, you know, big quotes, hoarding activities, you know, big collections of silver in Gotland that show Eastern connections and Western connections. And we see a sort of flow of silver across the, the Viking Age world. And again, going back to that question of, you know, who were the people that were placing these? And were they, in a way, saying about themselves with this, their collection of collection of goodies yeah so yeah I, I wonder if, if if the horde if if this horde and all the other hordes can really be thought of like uh, in that frame what did they think about themselves yeah. who did they think they were uh and and was that meaningful in this assemblage and i think with regard to the galloway horde you know when it came out of the ground immediately all the chatter all the headlines was new viking horde mm-hmm. because it had these bars of silver it had these arm rings with that distinctive stamped ornament that you find in what we call Viking hordes in Ireland and in England, uh, you know. So there's there's this horde from Lancashire called Curedale, and it uh, it remains the largest sort of uh, uh, silver hoard by weight uh, from the Viking Age. It was deposited, you know, the the early years of the 10th century, so the early 900s, uh, and so around the time of the Galloway Horde, and has loads of these. Uh, bars of silver, these arm rings, very similar to those in the Galloway Horde. And so immediately the conversation was around new Viking Horde, but now in Galloway. And the more we look at those objects, the less and less Viking it begins to look. So those arm rings and silver bars are characteristic of 10th century hordes. They're looking to the future at this point. But everything else about the Galloway Horde kind of looks back to hordes of the ninth century. There's complete brooches, there's uh, Anglo-Saxon material, there's an Irish brooch in there, uh, and there's very little that is actually coming from Scandinavia in the Galloway Horde. There's actually just one arm ring, which is of a maybe Norse, mm-hmm probably more southern Scandinavian style, and all of the rest of them are of this kind of arm ring that is used in the Viking Age Irish Sea kind of zone. Uh, and so it, 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 even the silver, which we called Viking, starts to look more that term that we use in yeah. archaeology, Hiberno Norse, yeah. which is that, that sort of, that, that kind of Viking stuff that you only get in the Irish Sea zone, yeah. you know? Uh, but now we know extends uh, to the northern coast, if you like. It's not mm-hmm. just in Lancashire and Cumbria and Ireland, the Isle of Man. Now it also includes Galloway. So you've got this whole, uh, it's been called the Viking Lake, but they're yeah. doing something with that silver that is 
basically only for use in that area, you know? And, and so it's Viking Age, but it's also distinct and local. Mm-hmm. It's regional, isn't it? Uh, and then the rest of the objects in that silver vessel uh, are, if anything, Anglo-Saxon, Northumbrian. You could just call it by the art style, which is the true Hiddle style mm-hmm. ornament that they use. All of that is now uh, based on the English side or the, the eastern coast of that Irish sea zone, at least, and northern England in particular. But we also tend to forget that Northumbria, that Anglo-Saxon-speaking kingdom that's called Northumbria, extended all the way out mm-hmm. to Galloway and Ayrshire at the time that this hoard was deposited. So if you call it Viking... It seems like it comes from Scandinavia, but there's very yeah. little that's actually Scandinavian in it. If you call it Anglo-Saxon, that makes you think of England, but actually Galloway is part of that same kingdom. Basically, when you go right down to it, this is a horde of its time and of its place. And calling it Anglo-Saxon doesn't capture the whole story. Calling it Viking doesn't capture the whole story. It's all of these things at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, absolutely one of the things that makes it so interesting. And I want to pull on that thread of, of this sort of two kind of sides of the story kind of coming together. And I think that if you, if you look at uh, Galloway in its sort of uh, historical, political context, it's so surrounded by all these big players, right? So it won't be long before the Dane law is going to be established. Of course, there's the Northumbrian Anglo-Saxon is not long after, you know, uh, Alba has formally been established in the north, so it's sort of sandwiched in, and of course the Irish Sea is this, you know, was this hub of, you know, Viking activity, Dublin, and the uh, sort of Irish cities that have been established, York has been sort of this focus of uh, Viking activity, and Galloway is so in the middle of all of these different things, and you think about... um, What's what you sort of patterning that you see uh, at this time is it's not just raiding, but it's settlement of um, the sort of Scandinavians coming across of the you know Lucy used the term uh, Viking, which is of course separate from Viking Age because the Viking Age speaks to all of the things that are happening in this time period. We know a little bit more from recent excavations at Repton that some of the raiding parties actually brought their families with them. So you know you think about you know. You, you conjure conjures up these images of sort of a fleet of long ships, but there would have been sort of follower ships coming that weren't just, you know, camp followers that were actually like the families coming across. And we have these settlement patterns uh, happening. So if you consider that Galloway's in this combination, there must have been, you know, recently landed Scandinavians in the area. There's more regular contact with um the sort of wider network and travelers and traders coming in. Um, there's, of course, probably landed, um, you know, older families of Anglo-Saxons within, you know, the leadership. There's the church element. They're present as well. Um, there's probably some sort of um, older sort of Celtic connection with Welsh and Strathclyde um, being in the area. So it's this weird, um, or probably not weird, probably actually typical of what's happening um sort of almost plural society in the area. And I think that's one of the things that makes the gallery hoard so interesting is that it shows this combination 
and so going back to the idea of the sort of layering of of the horde and the lower layer and the upper sort of formally separated um, layer of silver, the you know the bulk of the silver and the arm rings and things that speak to that wider, um, longer distance Viking connection with the sort of trading in silver bullion and the arm rings that happen to take on that um, Irish sea that are sort of, I guess, emblematic of that Irish sea character and speak to that wider connection with the, you know, placed in the same layer in a different bundle, but the same layer as the heirloom objects from Anglo-Saxon Northumbrian people. And we have those in the same layer. So there's something, some conversation happening there. If you think about it as being collected over time, but maybe placed at the same time, there's maybe someone connected to that trade network present with the Anglo-Saxon side, kind of in there in the same depositional context. When we talk about the kinds of objects in the Horde, and, and I'm guilty of it as well, just in this conversation of calling some objects Viking, some objects Anglo-Saxon, uh, what's really unique and eye-opening about the stuff in the Galloway Horde is that the Viking Age objects, those silver arm rings, are in in a couple of cases almost uniquely in this horde uh, signed with what look like names. In one case, certainly a personal name. One of the arm rings that was found in the excavation around the horde, not part of it, but possibly separated from it. Uh, Except that's the one that's in the plow soil. Yeah, there was one. There was one silver arm ring that was found. Uh, a short distance away from the horde, which may originally have been part of it and maybe got separated by the plow. Uh, it's in close association with the horde. This arm ring was inscribed in runes with the name Egbert, Egbrecht, you know? And so that is in uh, Anglo-Saxon types of runes, not Scandinavian, and is an Old English name. And then there's four other arm rings in the horde proper that are also inscribed, again, with Anglo-Saxon runes. And so there is a quote-unquote Viking object signed with the name of uh, an Old English speaker, mm. probably, in those cases, with uh, Old English names. And so these are boundary-crossing objects, and there's no good name for it, really. It's neither Viking nor mm -hmm. Northumbrian. It's... And that's why when it came to uh, naming the exhibition, you know, it's a Viking Age horde rather than a Viking horde. Well, thank you to both of you for meeting us today. We really appreciate you both taking the time to talk to us about such a fascinating topic. Following on from today's discussion, I have to ask, what would you put in your own hordes if you happen to be burying a horde today, for instance? What would I put into my own personal horde if I was dropping a Galloway horde into the garden today, it wouldn't just be my stuff. If it was a little time capsule of me, nearly 40, at this stage of my life, I think my own identity is bound up in, to a certain extent, archaeology. I'm a nerd. I have been for a long time. There's no getting around it. I'll put something weird and nerdy in there <laughs> for sure, which would be my thing. But I'm also a migrant. I was born in Puerto Rico. I married an American woman. I live in Scotland. 
you know? And so I would probably have those elements in there, almost like a biography to sort of say, this is where I came from, but this is where I am now. But then I would absolutely put stuff that speaks to my children. There would be some children's objects in there, uh, you know, whether they knew it or not. I would more than likely ask them to offer something. If we were doing a time capsule, it would just be mine. And all of a sudden, you, in just that little exercise, you're thinking about three, four different countries, four different people. Mm-hmm. How many of their stories are in there? All of a sudden, you know, this, this, what would you, this question, what would you put in a hoard? Suddenly becomes about my 40 years, my children, my wife, the countries that we've been through, our stories. And if you put that all in a hoard and you didn't have any of those stories, you'd have a hard time kind of putting that together, but it was meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it ta- me talking about something that represents me included other people by default. It included my wife, my family, my kids, you know? Uh, and I think that tells you everything. Uh, your possessions include so many people and so many places that it's barely about you at all. Yeah, no, that was that was beautiful. I would <laughs> struggle to not like 100% echo that because I think, um, if, I guess for the listener, um, Asia and I are, have actually fairly like oddly parallel life histories because I'm American, I married a British woman, we have a 10-month-old, so objects that I would collect would be me, her, and something of his, um, even though he's probably too little to even understand, you know, what we were doing, but uh, as you said, it would be meaningful to me. Uh, I mean, one particular object that I have in mind that immediately sort of springs to my mind in terms of family heirlooms is my dad's watch which i mean i'm gonna try to not try to not get for clint um <laughs> but it was uh so i have my dad's watch that i got from when he died um some 15 years ago actually in september so it's a tough month um uh that was he was wearing it when he died and i inherited it when we sort of thought about things that we would like to get of of dad's and um that was the watch that he wore every day and in in a very weird um happenstance when I moved to Glasgow to start studying my master's um so the so the watch stopped working when my dad died right uh and when I moved to Glasgow I brought it with me as this sort of good luck charm in a way even though it didn't work it didn't work for two years um and then when I got to Glasgow and really started sort of giving it some attention it started working again so I was like huh maybe dad wants me to be here maybe he this is where he thinks I need to be so I would definitely um you know if I was committing something of me and my life history into the ground that's probably would be the first things I would reach for it's beautiful that really was beautiful thanks for sharing that with us Tim I think that's a great note to finish up on before we go, is there anything that either of you would like to plug or any final thoughts? After the exhibition closes at Aberdeen, 
uh, we continue to work on and research the Horde. Uh, the research project around the Horde is ongoing until 2024, and between now and then, and even far beyond, I'm sure, uh, we'll be putting updates, more events, more news, more blogs uh, as the news uh, emerges. So you can follow all that on the National Museums of Scotland social media accounts, or you can go to our Galloway Horde page, which is nms.ac.uk slash Galloway Horde. Uh, in the meantime, if you just can't get enough, you can always pop down to the Aberdeen Art Gallery gift shop where you can find copies of Martin Goldberg and Mary Davis's great book to go with the exhibition called The Galloway Horde, A Viking Age Treasure. Uh, and if you like what you heard today, I wrote a book recently uh, for the National Museum of Scotland. It's called Crucible of Nations, Scotland from Viking Age to Medieval Kingdom. Buy it in any gift shop today. And if you haven't uh, seen the Gallery Horde in Aberdeen Art Gallery, you have uh, only a few weeks to come and see it. The exhibition is excellent, and uh, you will be in for a treat. We hope that listening to Adrian and Tim's discussion has inspired you to find out more about the Gallery Horde and what it can tell us about Scotland in the Viking Age. The Galloway Horde Viking Age Treasure Exhibition at Aberdeen Art Gallery closes on Sunday 23rd of October 2022. But as Adrian said, research into this fascinating horde will continue. You can find out more on the National Museum of Scotland website at www.nms.ac.uk. Remember to hit that subscribe button to never miss an episode of Gather Round. Until next time, goodbye.